Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachar Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that this summer is stressing the importance of being a good steward on the trail, finding ways to avoid contributing to crowding, and staying safe on public lands. We'll tell you how just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages everyone to come out and experience state parks during its centennial, the 100th anniversary of the state park system, especially through service projects listed online at stateparks.oregon.gov. It's a way to enjoy parks while doing activities like cleaning up trails and restoring wetlands. All right, in today's episode, we have part two of our favorite weird, wild, and interesting stories about famous Oregon destinations. In this episode, we talk about eating dog in Hood River, a ghost wagon rising from the Detroit Lake mud, and a famous feline being launched off Sahaley Falls in your favorite 1990s movie. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. Okay, well, in this episode, we are continuing what we started last week, and that's bringing back some of our favorite stories from the first 70 episodes of the Explore Oregon podcast. If you missed the previous episode, that one has tales of Lincoln City and its feud with a fifth grade class from Montana, how a disabled snowmobiler from Salem inspired Oregon's snowpark system, a naked mountain man named John Day, and a princess turned to stone. So if you missed that, you'll definitely want to catch up on it. But in this episode, which is volume two of the fun stories, we've got a lot more good stuff, including the hunt for pirate treasure on Neakani Mountain, which inspired the idea of One-Eyed Willie in the plot of the classic movie Goonies. We've also got Oregon's most bizarre lighthouse, a little-known history of Hoodoo ski area, and two of the world's most impressive groves of trees, We'll be back with more traditional episodes shortly. In fact, I just finished recording a great podcast with three river guides about the 20 best river trips in Oregon. So be prepared for that coming up next week. But in the meantime, enjoy this fun little diversion of fun, goofy, and sometimes grotesque stories. All right, up first, we've got our second story about the namesake of an Oregon town. In the first volume, we covered the murder and betrayal that went into the naming of Grants Pass down in Southern Oregon. This story has just a touch of darkness as well, especially if you are fond of man's best friend. So here is the backstory of Hood River. Okay, so we're going to step back a minute because we're going to talk about Hood River, the stream to start. Its original name is Labish River, named so by Lewis and Clark in 1805. They named it for Francis Labish, who was a member of the Corpse of Discovery. So it's kind of interesting, but it didn't stay that way. Yeah, there's a million places that have that sort of name to start with. But the really interesting part came next. So Labish River just didn't stick. And instead, the river became known as Dog River. 
And the reason, very sadly, to quote the book is, in pioneer days, some travelers, being in a starving condition, ate dog meat near Hood River. And the name Dog River was the result. Yeah, you think about, you know, the Oregon Trail and Western migration that saw thousands of folks journeying out with sort of varying levels of preparedness. It makes sense that dog would eventually make the menu at some point. And look, I mean, they're traveling over a vast desert to get there. I mean, you're going to do whatever it takes to to get to that fertile Willamette Valley. And look, you know, got to do what you got to do. But... The river and the subsequent town that sprang up did not remain Dog River for that long because, look, that is a pretty depressing name for a river in town. So, again, to quote the book, Later on, Miss Mary Coe, a well-known pioneer resident of the valley, objected to the name Dog River and succeeded in changing local usage to Hood River on account of Mount Hood, its source. The Hood River appears on maps by 1852, and the name Dog River was relegated to a small tributary that flows into the Hood River. So the grim name endures, it's just been relegated slightly down. My question for you, do you think Hood River becomes the tourist mecca it is today, you know, full of the brew pubs and awesome outdoor athletes, if the town had remained Dog River? I mean, can you sell Dog River as the gateway to Mount Hood? Uh, I mean, I think today it might be a grand marketing opportunity, but, you know, as far as as it was growing, probably kind of a depressing sort of way to stake your place in history. I mean, I think about all those restaurants that, like, people are traveling through and they, like, read the little thing that has the the history. (laughs) They're like, oh, that's depressing. I just lost my appetite. So from pioneers eating their dogs, let's jump back to some more modern history. And this one deals with the largest drug bust in state history at a place called New River on the South Coast. The drug bust became a huge story at the time and ended up leading to today what is a wonderful little collection of trails and a boat ramp on this unique river that actually like flows along the ocean coast. It's really, I get into it more in the story, but it's pretty, it's very unique. As an aside, the drug bus served as inspiration for one of my favorite uh, Oregon books, uh, books titled The Rainy North Woods, which was written by former Oregonian reporter Vince Kohler. Uh, one of my former editors once described his writing style as Agatha Christie on crack. Still worth checking out. But anyway, here's that story. All right. Well, at the beginning, we talked about some of the great under-the-radar places near Bandon. And one place that definitely qualifies is New River Recreation Site, about 10 miles south of Bandon. But don't let the quiet fool you. This is once the site of one of Oregon's largest drug busts. Yeah, so there's a lot going on here out at New River, but let's start with the river itself. So New River is a stream that runs parallel to the ocean for nine miles. Now, that's kind of weird, so let me describe that a little bit. So there's basically the ocean, this long strip of beach in the middle, and then a pretty large river just on the other side of that very small beach. It's, it's pretty odd. So the river was created in 1890 when Flores Lake flooded after a big storm. A large sand dune stopped that wa- excess water from overflowing into the ocean, so instead the water carved out a new channel behind the front dune, and that became what's today a pretty wide stream. Like, this isn't a small creek. The legend goes that a startled farmer, like, <laughs> wandered out onto his fields one day and basically said, hey, it's a new river, and that's the name that stuck. So that sounds interesting, but what can you actually do there? Is this the best for a canoe? 
Can you visit the beach between the river and the ocean? What's going on? So let me answer the first question, then I'll get to that isolated beach, which again ties into the drug bust. So recreation, there's a few good options. You can actually start at Flores Lake and canoe the entire thing. Uh, There's good steelhead and salmon fishing in there. I headed directly out to what's called the New River Area of Critical Environmental Concern. Sounds serious. Yeah, that's really the name. It's managed by the Bureau of Land Management. And, you know, basically you get there and you follow this gravel road way, way, way back off the highway into this kind of remote little area. There's a fun trail system back there that's that's really pleasant. It used to be a place called Storm Ranch that, you know, like a, a old homesteading family grew up on. Now, the trail system is exceedingly pleasant, traveling over dunes, forest with views of the new river and the ocean that's just beyond. There's a little boat ramp there where you can plop down a kayak and paddle out onto the new river and go across to this beach that, you know, sits in that area. It's kind of like a beach that's surrounded by a moat of water. It's it's sort of a weird experience to be up there. You do have to be careful about going over there. It's snowy plover habitat, which is a protected bird in the area. So make sure to just check out the signs and the website before you do that. So what about the drug bust? Right. So this very peaceful little area, this area of critical environmental concern, was once the site of the largest drug bust in Oregon history. In 1977, a California guy named Arthur Allen purchased this place, Storm Ranch, from the couple that had owned it for decades. And locals started noticing odd things happening after he bought it. So all the roads were promptly, you know, gated off and they would see these amphibious vehicles like the old school World War II ducks just kind of like rolling around town and band in there just like, what's going on? Like, this is weird. DEA and local sheriffs started investigating, and on New Year's Eve in 1977, the Coast Guard swooped in and seized six tons of marijuana being (laughs) offloaded uh, from an amphibious vehicle onto a ship that was docked on that very isolated beach that sits between, you know, New River and the ocean. It's just a, it's a hard-to-reach place, so it seemed like a good place to, you know, set up a, a drug ring. A total of 17 people were arrested, and a few days later, Alan, the guy who had bought the property, was arrested while hitchhiking down Highway 101. (laughs) So if you visit the New River area, now, again, it's a really peaceful and quiet place now. But the reason that it is is that the federal government seized the property (laughs) after this massive drug bust. So you have them to thank for this nice little patch of quiet out there south of Bandon. All right, up next, we've got a tale that has actually been in the news very recently. Now, over the years, there have been legends about pirate gold and shipwrecks around the town of Manzanita out on the coast. The tales actually served as the inspiration for the One-Eyed Willie story in the classic movie Goonies. And there is some basis to it, namely about a Spanish shipwreck in the 1600s off the Oregon coast that spilled a cargo that included beeswax and other items. It kind of got conflated with gold and pirates as the years went on, but that's kind of what it is. Recently, the original beams of that shipwreck were discovered, and there was a story just published and a great read. If you can find it out there, just do a Google search for it, and you'll be able to find it. And it details the timbers, the original timbers that were part of the shipwreck. Anyway, our tale in this case focuses a little bit more on the various legends that have sprung up around it over the years, and 
kind of how one of Oregon's most beautiful mountains was turned into, you know, a hot spot for amateur treasure seekers. So here is that tale. All right, so let's jump into the cool places and trails at Oswald West State Park. I think it makes a little sense to start with kind of the granddaddy of them all, Neokani Mountain. The name comes from the Tillamook tribe that lived in the area and translated roughly means place of the supreme deity or place of the god. It's also the mountain with the fabled treasure. So there's kind of a lot going on here. So where should we start? Well, let's start with the hike itself, like the nuts and bolts. So right now the north part of the trail is actually closed. Hopefully it reopens soon. But you can still climb to the summit on two different options that are longer or shorter. For the longer option, you can actually begin in Manzanita and follow a brand new section of the Oregon Coast Trail recently completed by the Trail Keepers of Oregon for 1.8 miles and about 800 feet of climb to the South Neokani Trailhead. For the shorter and more family-friendly option, you can actually drive to that same point and then from that trailhead, it's another 1.5 miles and 800 feet to the summit, which is breathtaking. I mean, the top up there takes in views that stretch 30 to 40 miles down the coast, down this beautiful crescent beach. You really feel like you're on top of the world up there. All told, the shorter option is three miles round trip, and the longer option is around six to seven miles, kind of depending on where you start in Manzanita. A lot of people like to start at the beach where you can look up at the mountain and kind of think to yourself, hey, I'm going to be at the top pretty soon. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those uh, sort of summits and viewpoints when you get there. It is one of the just defining Oregon places that like sticks in your mind. It really is. And I should mention, you know, the trail goes up right next to the top. But if you want to get up to the true summit, you kind of do a little scramble uh, up some rocks. Not everybody does it, but I did it with my four-year-old. So it's just kind of a quick little scramble. And the view from that top, oh, man, it's like you're saying. It's one of those just amazing viewpoints. Like every time I see a picture of it, I'm like, I know exactly where that is. Yeah. So any other highlights from the hike you want to point out? Well, I did this with my two daughters uh, when they were young. And one of the ways I used to keep them interested was by making up a song based on what we were seeing. So on this hike, you get pretty good views of the Nehalem River and Bay below. And my four-year-old at the time was very excited that Nehalem and Salem rhymed. So we made up this song. Are you ready, David? There's not a lot of opportunities to give you to sing on the <laughs> podcast, so I welcome it. Go for it. All right, it. here it is. Oh, Salem, Nehalem, Salem, Nehalem. One is home to the fishes in the sea. The other is home to you and to me. Oh, Salem, Nehalem, Salem, Nehalem. Yeah, that's it. That's the song. What do you think? Uh I hope we still have some listeners at this point in the <laughs> podcast, but that was pretty catchy. I appreciated it. Um so, obviously, I mean, we're doing this hike on Neokani Mountain, so could you have mixed in some of the legend of the gold here? Or what? Well, they were pretty young at the time, and there are some sort of adult themes to this story. So, But since you brought it up, let's, let's tackle that. Let's get into this, because this is really one of my favorite histories in all of Oregon. So here's basically the legend says that in the 16th century, a group of either Spanish sailors or possibly pirates made landfall here. They carried a chest of gold up this very mountain. I guess it's a good landmark that you could see from the ocean. Anyway, and they bury the gold and then murder a man who is with them. Some of the tellings say it was an African slave, and they toss the body onto the treasure before burying it. The idea here was that local Native Americans wouldn't disturb the treasure if it was a grave and there was a dead body there. So, look, all I'm saying is that 
probably not singing that song to my two and four year olds uh, to keep them hiking that might give them some pretty bad nightmares. That seems like a story for kids when they reach kind of like the Goonies age. And speaking of which, I don't have any evidence for this, but the whole one-eyed willy myth from Goonies has to be related to this, right? Like buried treasure and treachery on the Oregon coast. Like that can't be a coincidence. I'm sure they drew pretty heavily from from this particular legend. It's been around for quite a while. And I mean, really, it goes uh, apparently all the way back to like the Hudson's Bay Company era. And to its credit, there have been artifacts possibly of Spanish origin found on the mountain. And if you want to take a really deep dive into the subject, there's a lot of history suggesting that uh, Spanish sailors did land here and maybe even nearby in Short Sand Beach, which we'll talk a little bit later. But no actual treasure has been found on the mountain, and it's honestly not for lack of trying. <laughs> when a legend goes back that far, I mean, people are going to – there's a select part of the population that's really going to buy into that, and that is definitely what happened here. At least two treasure hunters died in the 1930s when a hole they were digging caved in on them. I think my favorite thing is that this legend held sway all the way into the 1960s and 70s. A guy from Salem named Tony Marino actually brought heavy equipment out onto the mountain to dig for treasure in 1968, and he kept at it for a while. But alas, no treasure was found, and according to an old newspaper story, Moreno called it quits, to quote the story, after failing to crack an underground treasure vault. That's some high expectations. I mean, that's... It would be super cool if it happened, though. Like, how cool would it be if you, like, found this old buried treasure? Like, that never happens. No. And speaking of movies, while Goonies is obviously the best-known treasure-seeking caper set on the Oregon coast, there's actually a movie specifically about this legend set in Manzanita and filmed on the Oregon coast that came out in 2007. It was a made-for-TV movie called Tillamook Treasure, and here's a little audio from the trailer. My people were hunting on the slopes of Neocani Mountain when they saw a strange craft coming. White men carried a large chest up the mountain. They dug a deep hole and put the treasure chest into it and disappeared forever. Hundreds of treasure hunters looked for the chest and all have failed because they were not the ones chosen. One who is brave enough not to be afraid of the ghost of the slave. So I don't know that I would necessarily uh, recommend people seek that out, but if you happen upon it, you know, maybe it's a good uh, hour and plus of uh, entertainment. I mean, it's just alone for like seeing the Oregon landmarks like on the big screen. Like that's kind of cool. Like they obviously filmed at the beach in Manzanita looking up at Neocani Mountain. So they're on site and it's just kind of fun to see those places. So you can you can look at the coast and hopefully ignore the bad acting according to the reviews. I don't know. That's just what I've read. I haven't seen it. That's harsh. Okay, this next story isn't super long or as detailed as some of our other reporting, but I don't think I can do a collection of quirky stories without mentioning the ghost wagon of Detroit. So, oh yes, every once in a while, when the water is low enough, an ancient wagon rises from the mud of Detroit Lake Reservoir, and everybody gets very, very excited about it. Uh, We've reported a couple stories on it over the years that have gone viral, like all over the place online. People love this ghost wagon, and so here's a little bit about that. All right, welcome back. In the second half of the podcast, we're going to move a little faster. I'm going to read a headline. Zach will tell us a little bit about it. The first one is definitely going to need a little bit of explanation, (laughs) though. So here we go. 
So the headline is, Ghost Wagon Rises from the Detroit Lake Mud. This one sort of brings up some questions about how we should treat historic artifacts on public lands. Right. So this story was before the wildfires and even COVID-19, that wonderful moment in time that we now call the before (laughs) times. So this was actually from last January. And just like the headline said, a wagon rose out of the mud in the bottom of Detroit Lake. And here's the background. The town of Detroit was not always in its current location. It once sat along the banks of the North Sanium River in the late 1800s as mostly a timber town and outpost with horse-drawn wagons. When Detroit Dam was built in the 1950s, Old Detroit was flooded and the town displaced, moved to its current location. But there was some stuff left behind. And one of those things was these wagons from right around the turn of the century. And you know, submerged in that mud and water, it has been preserved and kept intact in this low oxygen environment. And when the reservoir gets low enough, which first occurred in 2015 and then in the beginning of 2020, you can get a view of this wagon by walking through this incredibly deep and sticky mud. It's really hard to even get out and see it, but you can make it happen if you're pretty intrepid. Now, it's important not to touch it, if it ever does show up again, because it does disappear back under the water pretty quick. But the fact that it's there and sometimes shows up is pretty cool. It's just this blast from the past. My favorite thing about this is that this is clearly a wagon that nobody wanted when the town flooded. Like, it had been out of use for a pretty long time. But now when it shows up, it becomes like an internet sensation. Like, the story was picked up in a million different places, and, I mean, it was a big deal. Yeah, it's like this discarded item that's now this, you know— crazy piece of the past. Well, it's sort of like the stuff that we're seeing like with Pompeii, like everything that is super commonplace back then, but now we see now, is we're just like, wow, that's the most amazing thing. And back in the day, they'd been like, yeah, that was our toilet paper. <laughs> okay, up next, we're going to talk about lighthouses. So early on in the podcast, we did an episode on how to visit and climb all of Oregon's lighthouses, which included some history, obviously. And for my money, nothing quite tops the tale of terrible Tilly. So we're going to pick it up right here. Now let's go ahead and talk about some lighthouses that you can't actually get to, but they're still worth a look. All right. So as we mentioned in the intro, you're not allowed to visit all of Oregon's lighthouses. But that doesn't mean they need to be ignored, because some of my favorite ones are the ones you can only see from a distance. The two that we're talking about here are Tillamook Rock and Cape Argo Lighthouses. The good news is that you can still enjoy them from two of Oregon's best coastal hiking trips, so it's not like, you know, you're not having a good time while you get to see these. Yeah, let's go ahead and start with Tillamook Rock, also known as Terrible Tilly, because it's actually perched out on a tiny rock island that gets absolutely pummeled by waves and is without a question one of the harshest places on the coast to put a building (laughs) that, you know, was meant for people to live in. So it's located just off Tillamook Head at what is today Ecola State Park. The only way to see it is to hike Tillamook Head Trail, this really beautiful pathway between Cannon Beach and Seaside. So there's a big overhead viewpoint. But since the lighthouse is 1.2 miles offshore, again, just on this rock, it's very much worth bringing binoculars so you can understand the wild lunacy of this lighthouse, (laughs) which sits on a sheer basalt island the size of, like, a large backyard. But lighthouse keepers really did live there from 1881 to 1957. 
It was one of the most expensive lighthouses to operate in the United States because, not surprisingly, it was constantly getting damaged and destroyed by waves. A number of people died while building it, and there are really a lot of wild stories about it. So, among those stories, here, here are two of my favorites. Like, during the peak of its operation, this tiny island housed four lighthouse keepers. Now, these were all males, all forbidden from bringing families or having women or children there for six months while they're getting battered by the sea. They had a reputation for being some of the orneriest people in Oregon, <laughs> and it is not hard to see why. And, you know, when I was researching this, I had to laugh because there is a trailer for a new movie coming out called The Lighthouse. It stars William Defoe and Robert Pattinson as two lighthouse keepers who, faced with this overwhelming solitude, start to lose their sanity and become threatened by their worst nightmares. Like, I've seen the trailer, and it's just basically these two disheveled-looking dudes screaming at each other. And <laughs> I think that's probably how it probably played out at Tillamook Rock Lighthouse. Yeah, it's really super timely and definitely what the kids call a big mood. Yeah. But uh, somehow even crazier than that. So that was the first crazy story, is that four, you know, bachelor dudes lived there and probably just screamed at each other. But crazier than that is that after the lighthouse was decommissioned, it became a storehouse for cremated human remains. I'll let that sink in for a second. So it was called Eternity at Sea, and it contained 30 urns of dead bodies before it was shut down. The public, sadly, is not allowed to visit now, but wow, I mean, with all that, this has to be on the short list of the most bizarre places in Oregon. Okay, so if you actually want to see Terrible Tilly, it's probably best to go ahead and bring your binoculars. The hike gives you a pretty decent view on a clear day, but to really appreciate it, bring your binoculars. All right, so we've got another fun update on Terrible Tilly, and that is the fact that she has been put up for sale. Uh, the owner uh, who hatched this whole idea of a crematorium at sea listed the property for $6.5 million earlier this year. There's a great story on Oregon Public Broadcasting about it with a whole bunch of fun nuggets, uh, including the fact that only 31 people ever had their ashes put out there, and that at one point, vandals broke in to the lighthouse and stole two urns of ash, which honestly seems like an amazing setup for a horror movie. But anyway, you can read all about it over there at OPB and I would suggest it. It's a, it's a fun read. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we'll tell the tale of Oregon's second oldest ski area, a place named for popping that most important of questions and two wonderfully named and impressive groves of trees. That's when we return. I'm Sarah Gafori with American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. I moved to Oregon because of my love for the outdoors. It also inspired me to go to law school and pursue a career in environmental law. At AFRC, I have the pleasure of advocating for science-based forest management throughout the West. Protecting our public lands helps achieve important conservation goals, including clean air, clean water, and robust wildlife habitat. It also helps provide renewable, climate-friendly wood products that we all depend on. We strongly believe that active management of our public lands is the right thing to do for the environment, for the economy, and for our future. Learn more about AFRC at amforest.org. This 
This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. If you enjoy hiking the trails of the Tillamook Coast, consider becoming active in their care. By acting as a steward to our beautiful natural spaces, you're investing in their future health and sustainability. There are many different ways to be a good steward. Pack out everything you pack in. Stay on marked trails. Park only in designated parking areas at trailheads. Pick up after your dogs and take home nothing but photos. If you want to take on a larger stewardship role, there are several local conservation groups who could use your volunteer power on a number of projects. To identify an organization to volunteer with, email danhag at tillamookcoast.com. Once again, that's Dan Hag. He's your contact. And his email is dan, D-A-N, at tillamookcoast, which is all one word, dot com. Okay, we're going to move inland from the coast a little bit now and look at the history of Oregon's second oldest ski area. And it's one you might not guess. It is Hoodoo Ski Area up on Sanium Pass. It also happens to be my local hill, a place that I spend a lot of time at. And, you know, if I wouldn't have done this research, I never would have guessed all the stuff that's going on in its history. It's pretty good. All right, welcome back. We typically start the second half of the podcast with a story or two and a little bit of history. And one place that really applies is Hoodoo Ski Area. It's somewhat overshadowed now by the larger resorts on Mount Hood and Mount Bachelor. But Hoodoo is actually the second oldest ski area in Oregon. And there's a lot of fun history here. Yeah, so Hoodoo officially opened in 1938. And again, it was the second one to open in the state after Timberline Lodge just a year, year earlier. And it was a big deal. The first fun note here, though, is that the current location wasn't the first choice. The guy who opened it, uh, a mill owner from Eugene named Ed Thurston, decided that the location was originally going to be on Three Finger Jack, one of the most dramatic mountains in the state. It's certainly a lot better known than Hoodoo Butte, and the Forest Service agreed to this. So there's this crazy what if, um, because nowadays Three Finger Jack's within a federal wilderness area. It's kind of known as this very rugged, remote peak, but there was almost a ski area there. And it only didn't happen because they couldn't get funding for a four-mile road to lead there from Highway 20. So instead, they settled on Hoodoo Butte. And at first, there wasn't really much to it. It was basically just a tow rope that was powered by this old automobile engine. (laughs) And it was never really a sure bet that the engine was going to work. Yeah, you know, I wrote a story on the history, and I talked to a guy named Jim Hosmer. And it was his job back in those early days to get the engine running every morning. And he said the first thing they did was break ice off it. And then they'd kick it a few times before it would, you know, sputter and then cough and then finally start humming. It's just this giant engine block that they had, you know, back in those days. He said it kind of had its own personality. Like some mornings it would be super grumpy and just didn't want to wake up. And other times it would be, you know, ready to go. He said once you got it running, it was pretty reliable, though. Anyway, along with the engine, one big difference in the early days was that there wasn't a road all the way to the tow rope. People had to park out along the highway and ski in to reach the tow rope at the base of Hoodoo Butte. Yeah, so I talked to a woman named Laureen Gar, and uh, she visited with her Jefferson High School class in 1946. And she said basically her class drove up on the highway, and then everyone slept at Sanium Lodge, which is right along the highway. And it cost you $1.25 per night if you brought your own sleeping bag. If you didn't bring your own sleeping bag, you could rent one, and it cost $3 per night. In the morning, they would ski a mile to what was then called Hoodoo Ski Bowl. 
And she said it was pretty exhausting to the point that, you know, they'd have this great day up in the mountains and then it would be time to go. And like some of her classmates just couldn't make it. Leave like, too much out there. They left too much out there. And so they'd have to like pull people back with like <laughs> leashes and ropes and stuff like that. And it was kind of an ordeal getting them all the way out of there. Hoodoo actually reached national prominence in 1950 when they became the first ski area in the state to install a double chairlift all the way to the summit. The new lift was supported by timbers that they cut sort of locally, but there was a problem. Yeah, this double chairlift was a big deal. It was the first one in Oregon, and apparently from what I read, it was one of the first in the world at that point. Hosmer said that they are all pretty proud of themselves for building it. And, you know, what they basically done is take these, you know, giant trees and then supported it on cables. The problem was that the trees they picked were not quite tall enough because it was good in the morning. But once the lift cables warmed up, they had a tendency to sag and the chairlifts would get down so low that the skiers basically had to hold <laughs> the skis up near their chins. So you have these people sitting in the double chairlift with their skis like over their heads. And he said the people who didn't pay attention would just get flipped out and face plant in the snow. And like this was a common occurrence. Like you'd be sitting there watching somebody go up the lift and all of a sudden, whomp. It's kind of amazing that anyone actually made it to the top, you know, considering maybe the lift wouldn't be running and then maybe they wouldn't, you know, they'd make it halfway and then get tired and fall off. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the early days of ski areas were just, just wild. <laughs> like, because, you know, it wasn't professional outfits that you have these days where it's like everything is standardized. It was just these guys j- jerry-rigging stuff together, basically. And there's just a lot of comedy, I think, in that whole thing because everything was like fraught with peril, <laughs> like on the edge of just like total calamity. Gradually, more ski areas opened up around the state, including on Willamette Pass and at Mount Bachelor. But Hoodoo stayed relevant until a series of unfortunate events. In 1967, a wildfire nearly burned the ski area to the ground, and it did take out one of the lifts. The next year, a different fire burned down the lodge and sadly took the life of a beloved German shepherd who was the only one there at the time. Yeah, there's a lot of mystery about what happened. You know, I read old newspaper clips about this, and, you know, the family that owned it, it was at the end of the season. They'd kind of gone into town, and they came back, and the lodge was just gone. This big fire had just started all of a sudden, and... You know, their beloved family dog, who is the only one who was there, just, you know, never showed up. And that experience, you know, kind of really set them back. It began this period when Hoodoo would kind of start to struggle. It started to get really overshadowed by the bigger ski areas like uh, Mount Bachelor and Mount Hood Meadows. And at some point, there was kind of a question about whether it would endure or what it would look like in the future. Yeah, when I was growing up in the, you know, 80s and 90s, Hoodoo was kind of the shabby cousin to the Mount Hood resorts. It was kind of an afterthought. You know, and that started to change in 1999 when the current owner, Chuck Shepard, purchased it. Now, he put a lot of money into it. He built the 60,000-foot lodge. He put in new lifts. He put in a tubing park. He kind of rebranded it as this sort of still nice but cheaper, less crowded alternative to Mount Bachelor and Mount Hood. And it's worked out. Hoodoo's attendance has, like, quadrupled since 2000. And they're doing well enough that they're planning to expand the parking lot next year. Yeah, the biggest challenge Hoodoo is likely to face in the future is actually getting enough snow. Climate change has really taken a toll on the lower elevation ski areas in Oregon. It's right at that zone where increasingly precipitation is falling more as rain than snow. And it's led to multiple years where Hoodoo was just barely able to open. You know, I've talked to the managers at Hoodoo about this a number of times just to see how they're going to deal with this in the future. In the current general manager kind of brought up the story about how he met with ski managers from Australia one year. And he told them about how those Australian 
resorts stayed open with just 12 inches of snow. By They basically harvested every last snowflake they could find. They creatively put it on runs. And so while the future could bring challenges, the current owners are thinking about this and they're committed to you know getting Hoodoo to its 100-year anniversary. All right, so in the same episode where we recorded the history of Hoodoo Ski Area, we also talked about one of my favorite waterfalls to visit in the winter. You know, I love winter waterfalls and this is one of my favorites. And that's the Haley Falls, which is just down the road from Hoodoo. And as I was listening back to this episode, I kind of forgot that I had this little detail in there, but it's such a fun one. It made me laugh. So I'm just going to include it here. So especially if you're from the 1990s, enjoy. So quick shout out to 90s kids here. One fun thing about Saheli Falls specifically that we have to mention is that it was featured in the 1993 classic Homeward Bound, the one about cats and dogs that can talk and go on an adventure. Saheli Falls is the waterfall that the character Sassy the Cat <laughs> kind of gets launched off of in the movie. Yeah, so you can actually find this clip on YouTube, and that's the reason we're bringing it up, is I got really happy the other day because I found this clip on YouTube. And, it, you know, it took me back to, I watched this movie a million times as a kid, and I remember that part. And then you follow the, the clip all the way to the end, and you're like, whoa, that's the Haley Falls. Because it's, that, a, it's that, a distinctive shape. Yeah, it's a really distinct waterfall, and you're like, oh, that has to be it. And then we Google searched it to, you know, fact check it. Um My question for you is, and I, I thought about this, is the Haley Falls is a powerful waterfall. In the movie, Sassy the cat survives the plunge off the waterfall. Do you think that cat actually survived the plunge? Well, I don't think they're actually throwing live cats over it. But I think theoretically, if we we were to sort of break this down, you've said that kayakers use it as a run. Well, occasionally the crazy kayakers do launch themselves off Sahaley Falls. So theoretically, there's probably, you know, a pretty wide open pool at the bottom. So chances are, you know, the cat will land in the pool sort of hopefully, you know, get its bearings together and swim towards the shore. Okay, so cats have the ability to do that. Because I I just don't feel like my dog would survive that. Uh, I mean, even odds maybe? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Tricky question. Okay, up next we're going to talk about one of my favorite places and a place that people are always very interested in. And that is the Valley of the Giants. It's home to some of Oregon's oldest and largest trees, but it's also surrounded by clear cuts in one of the most heavily logged areas in the state. So how did that happen? That's what we get into in this story. All right. So we're going to start off with the quintessential coast range destination, the Valley of the Giants. Now, this one is definitely going to be classified under, please help, I'm lost. It takes two and a half hours to get there from Salem, even though it's only 33 miles as the crow flies. You're taking a lot of left, right, left, right turns. Um, And I would definitely suggest getting the customized map from the Salem BLM office. You can also find it online before you go, because without it, you will almost certainly get lost. Yeah, and you may actually be passing through some active logging areas, so it's important to have up-to-date information. So that's why I would go ahead and give the Salem BLM office a call, just so they can set you straight. The location is kind of best described as the Upper Slits River west of Falls City. But again, enough of the hysterics. Go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about the majesty of the Valley of the Giants. Right, so... Valley of the Giants is just 51 acres of this giant old-growth forest. 
Uh, it has some of the largest and oldest trees in Oregon. They're monstrous, almost redwood level in size and girth all along the North Fork of the Siletz River. The ironic thing is that they're surrounded by one of the most heavily logged areas in Oregon. So it's this weird dynamic where you have this island of giant trees surrounded by a bunch of stumps. Yeah, and the drive is actually a pretty interesting adventure in and of itself. In addition to kind of the twists and turns throughout um, the journey, it takes you past the fascinating piece of Oregon history, the remains of a once bustling timber town called Valsets. It's gated off now, so it's not quite like you can stop and visit, but you can sort of catch glances of it along the route. Like, we could do an entire podcast just on Valsets. So it was a timber company town in the middle of nowhere, and during its height, it was home to a 1,000 people. Now, there were plenty of these timber towns around Oregon in the early 1900s, and basically what that meant is the loggers and their families just kind of lived, worked, got married um, in these towns that were owned entirely by the timber company in question. So Valsets actually had a school district, a company store, a restaurant, and a two-lane bowling alley. Yeah, the town lasted 64 years before folding for good in 1984, which is pretty amazing. But it begs the question, given how close this, you know, amazing stand of old-growth trees was to this logging epicenter, how did it survive without getting cut? Yeah, well, again, so Valley of the Giants, surrounded by logging, including this famous timber town called Valsets, and it, by all rights, it should have been cut. Um, and it really required yet another one of these only in Oregon stories to survive. And so the reason is this guy named Maynard Drossen took an interest in it. And so Drossen, he's this World War II vet, uh, and he's a barber that lives in Salem. And so he's known to traveling to wild places around the state. He gets tips from people he gives haircuts to, and he writes books about them. And in 1974, uh, he came to the, the Valley of the Giants. I don't think it was actually called Valley of the Giants at the time he applied that n- name. So he's really impressed by the size of the trees, just the way they showed what the Coast Range Forest used to look like. And he's horrified that they're definitely going to be cut, like it's for sure going to happen. So he just starts this one-man crusade to save them. So he gives lectures, he took people on field trips to see him, and basically he just wore down the Bureau of Land Management. He's one of those guys who's really persistent, has the gift of gab, and kind of to just get them off their back, they're like, all right, fine. We'll, we'll preserve it. And so now it's this outstanding natural area. Yeah, and it's worth remembering that even though this drive is super long, uh, the hike itself through the Valley of the Giants is pretty short at 1.6 miles. Yeah, it's a beautiful hike. Um, don't get me wrong. But if you're coming from the Willamette Valley, you're driving five hours round trip for what's a pretty short hike. Um, but I would say for the amount of Oregon history, just kind of the cool, interesting stuff going on here, it's it's worthwhile doing at least once in your life. Yeah, it's definitely one of those perspective-changing experiences. All right, the next place I want to talk about is one that just always makes me smile. And this is a place that you want to think twice about visiting with a significant other due to the name of the rock just off the coast. You'll see what I mean in a second. It's also home to an ancient underwater forest, so there is a lot going on at this destination. 
pick. All right. So for my fifth pick, um, I have yet another absolutely fascinating place that I'm going to do my best not to go on quite as long as I did about uh, Cape Kiwanda. But so my final pick is Proposal Rock and the Nezcoin Ghost Forest. Now, this is just a pretty little beach in the tiny town of Nezcoin. Uh, and so you walk out onto the beach and you know, notice kind of a really big island sea stack. And it is known as Proposal Rock. At low tide, you can actually go out there, climb up a steep little trail to the top. And it's kind of it's a fun trip. Great ocean views and stuff like that. But obviously, the name stands out. And again, this is just one of my favorite little histories. So the origins of that name go back to a sailor named Charlie Gage. And he came to the town of Nezcoin in the 1800s. Apparently, his heart was filled with love for a local girl named Delia Page, the daughter of a homesteading family that tended a farm along the Nezcoin Creek. As the story goes, Charlie took Della out on a boat and they floated to the rock. It's unclear if they walked onto the rock or not, but he asked for her hand in marriage around here. And in honor of it, the Page family, again, who are locals, they started calling it Proposal Rock. And the name stuck. So much so that it is now a popular place for people to go and get engaged. Um, a few years ago, I was writing about this area and I talked to the guy that owns Proposal Rock Inn. And he said that while they do benefit from a lot of people coming out there to get married and to get engaged, they've stopped promoting it quite so much because what they found is that it puts a lot of pressure on couples. <laughs> like if they were staying uh, you know, in the inn called Proposal Rock Inn, it created this expectation that someone better propose. And, Call it the sweaty, sweaty palms know. in. And so they they still do, but they've kind of de-emphasized that um, just a little bit. And another word of caution for something decidedly unromantic is that, you know, I talked about how you can climb up Proposal Rock at low tide. The problem is tide eventually comes back in and a number of couples have been stranded at the top like as the water got really high which would kind of put a damper on the engagement um, <laughs> yeah. so so don't get stranded on proposal rock also if you're looking for something decidedly less romantic but in my opinion a lot cooler the area is also home to the nezcoin ghost forest and at the lowest winter tides the stumps of this entombed collection of ancient sitka spruce become visible so here's how this happened so long ago these trees were entombed by a massive earthquake uh, we believe it was the last giant Cascadia earthquake back in 1700, and it actually dropped the coastal forest below the sand, but then preserved it in this saltwater bath. So the ghost forest became visible for the first time in 1997 uh, after a series of really big storms just swept down away the layers of sand and the trees started poking up through the surface. And apparently now at low tides, I don't know exactly how low the tides have to be for you to see it but you can go out and, and find it. I know it's in the winter. Um, I'm going to end this with uh, when I was researching the story, uh, you know, when this first became visible, it was, a, it was a pretty big news event. And so Brad Kane, who's with the Associated Press, went out there and this is the first sentence that he wrote. And it's just a really good one. So here's what he wrote. Like gnarled fingers rising from the surf, hundreds of stumps from an ancient forest that has been entombed since the time of Jesus are being slowly unearthed by El Nino's pounding waves. Wow. So that is, that's Brad Kane, that ladies and gentlemen. Done. That man, <laughs> that man can write a lead. Um, and so that is just, you know, overall, I don't know. 
like Nesquin is sort of like, yeah, you know, it's kind of cool and stuff, but like just the interesting tidbits there, like just have always made it a favorite spot. I think, and that that's one of the things that it's worth uh, researching and taking the time to find out when tides are and what they're doing, because I think that is a, a spot that is special for that reason that you, you know, you don't get to see, I don't know how many other spots are like that. I know a few goes for us up and down the coast, but uh, you know, they're, they're few and far between and, and that one's really worth it. I'm glad you included that in your list. All right, we're gonna wrap up with the story of what might be the most impressive grove of redwood trees in the world. And it's just a few miles south of the Oregon and California state line. Now, we've had a full podcast about the happy ending to this story more recently. But this original tale just so perfectly captures both the fun and the peril of traveling organs outdoors in the social media age that I wanted to end with it. Yeah, we like to start out the second part of these podcasts with a fun story about a person or an issue that impacts the area we're talking about. And there's a lot of choices for the Redwoods. You know, obvious ones would be, you know, the Save the Redwoods League that was responsible for, you know, saving the Redwoods in the early 1900s. Or we could talk about Jedediah Smith, that everything's named for him down here. He was this famous explorer. He would make a good story. But I wanted to pick something that was a little bit more modern that's still relevant uh, to what's going on here. And so we are going to talk about a place called the Grove of Titans. That's a good name. And it's an amazing place. Unfortunately, that awesome name is kind of part of the problem. So to set the scene, in the 90s, there was sort of a new movement to search out the world's tallest tree. It was generally thought that, you know, this sort of record-breaking tree was probably still out there and hadn't quite been discovered yet. So that sort of launched a bunch of self-proclaimed big tree hunters to strike out into the remote off-trail branches of the redwood parks, sort of in search for this hopefully mystical tree. Two of the best known were Michael Taylor and Steve Sillett. Their adventures were actually chronicled in a book titled The Wild Trees. Yeah, they were an interesting team. You know, Taylor was very much this regular guy. He lived in Humboldt County. He was a clerk at a supermarket. And he was just willing to search these super dense forests for these, you know, mythic trees, basically. Sillett, on the other hand, he's a professor at Humboldt State University, kind of a superstar in the scientific area because he pioneers this new way of climbing redwoods. Uh, instead of using spikes or something like that, he uses you know ropes and a harness so it doesn't harm the tree. And he uses that to study the redwood canopy and what's going on up there. It hadn't been studied previously. But it also allowed him to measure the size of the trees. It was a lot more accurate. So if you wanted to know if you found the world's tallest tree, this was the way to do it. You just climb up it and throw a you know measuring tape down, basically. And so these two go basically tromping off trail all over in the redwood jungles. So they do this for a while. And then in 1998, they're exploring and found something worth investigating. The day actually became known as the Day of Discovery. Yeah, so they were actually bushwhacking in Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park, that which we've talked about a lot here. And if you've ever been there or if you go there, and look off trail, you'll understand this is difficult work. I mean, it is dense forest. Like, you almost need a machete. Of course, you're not allowed to do that, but it really conjures up that image. And they're having a tough time on this day. Like, it's it's raining. It's getting dark. They're getting pissed off at each other. They're not sure where they are. And then all of a sudden, something amazing happens. They come across these monstrous trees 
They basically describe it as coming across, you know, a wall of wood just standing in front of them. It's one big tree after another. Now, these aren't the tallest trees in the world, but they're just very wide and tall, like an entire grove of General Sherman. So General Sherman is like the largest tree on earth, like by volume. And this is an entire grove of trees that size. They give them these cool names like Screaming Titan, Lost Monarch, and collectively, they're called the Grove of the Titans. But even after the discovery, no one else really knew about it, and it remained a secret for a long time while Sillett studied the grove. The trail was not really something you'd notice if you didn't know what to look for, but that all started to change with the publication of the book Wild Trees in 2007. Yeah, so the problem, or the good thing, depending on how you look at it, is that it's a good story. Like, I remember reading the book. It was really interesting. But the story about the Grove of the Titans really sticks out in a way that makes you want to find it. You know, if you're a young person and you're reading about this place called the Grove of the Titans and a tree called Screaming Titans, you're going to want to go see it with your own two eyes. You're not just going to be like, oh, okay, it's out there, whatever. And that's what happens. You know, a handful of these big tree hunters go out and try to find it. And at first, you know, the, the state parks department or the Redwood Parks people, they didn't mind. You're allowed to go off trail in the Redwoods. So they're kind of like, oh, you know, whatever. They didn't tell people where it was, but they're like, if you want to go search for it, knock yourself out. But then, you know, the Internet starts to get rolling and people post blogs of their own about finding the Titans. And there's more hints about how to find it. And then the coordinates of the grove get posted. And, you know, it's this snowball that's starting to roll downhill and downhill. And then, you know, the Internet picks up steam. Then social media arrives and pictures of the Grove of the Titans start to pop up. And now even more people want to go find it. It gets geotagged. You know, it shows up on Google Earth, I think, at one point. And so, you know, that river becomes a flood. And all of a sudden there's masses of people crashing around looking for the Grove of Titans. It started to damage this really pristine area. The guy that I worked with when I I wrote this story actually described it as turning into the Los Angeles freeway system in the middle of this primeval forest because there's like little circles of trails intersecting with little circles of trails. It looks like a highway system. Yeah, so drawing all these folks out into a relatively pristine sort of fragile area can be pretty damaging, not to mention that redwoods stand a lot to lose given the root system, right? Yeah, so redwoods are, are kind of unique. They have a root system that's actually close closer to the surface than other trees. So they kind of they'll even like interconnect a little bit. And so what the park does when it's building redwood trails is it builds the trails up using, you know, bark dust and all these different things so people aren't hitting the roots. But when you have all these people going off trail, it wears down the soil and people are, you know, sitting there trampling around on the roots, which is what the redwoods use to forage for for nutrients and stuff like that. It's not going to kill the trees overnight. You know, they've endured plenty over the millennia, but it does start to do damage. And, you know, so eventually the park system's like, look, we got to do something about that. And that's sort of where we are now. They were fundraising to build these boardwalk trails. So it would you know, take people from the trail into the Grove of the Titans, but they would do it on a boardwalk system so people weren't trampling the roots. At the same time, you know, Sillett, looking back, you know, I talked to him for the story and he said he really regretted having it in the book. I mean, he regretted naming it. And that's sort of the lesson that I take from this. You know, if you discover something cool, like there's no reason not to tell people about it or take pictures or anything like that. But as soon as you give it a super cool name, it becomes a destination and everybody wants to find it. Well, that's a bit of a depressing story, but one with possibly a hopeful outcome at some point. 
A trail system is still under development, so hopefully more people have a chance to see these amazing trees in the future. All right, so since we told this story on one of our early podcasts, the money has been raised and there is now an elevated boardwalk and official Grove of the Titans Trail. It is honestly one of the most beautiful pathways in the world, and it means a lot to me. I wrote a long story about the problems at the Grove of the Titans back in 2017, and the story went just crazy online. It got picked up by a lot of major news outlets. And the upside to that was all the coverage inspired millions of dollars of donations that made this new trail possible. So it was fun to play just a small role in that happening and creating what, again, I haven't been to many trails that are more spectacular. So on that hopeful note, we are bringing a close to our series of fun, weird, and quirky stories from Oregon's Outdoors, and we'll be bringing back more normal episodes beginning next week. If you want to listen to full versions of any Explore Oregon podcast, you can always sign on to statesmanjournal.com explore or just subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Spotify to find our entire back archive of episodes. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.